Well, if you want to open up your Bibles uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're actually not going to read this passage uh, or 17 together this morning. It's, it's a long bit. That, that's not why. We're actually going to go through it in the talk. Uh, so I want us to have our Bibles open. There'll be verses up on the screen. Uh, we very much are in the habit here at EV of working through the Bible and letting God's Word set the agenda. Uh, you don't want to hear what's going on in my head. You want to hear what God has to say. And that's exactly what we'll be doing as we go through these two amazing chapters uh, this morning together. So why don't we pray? that God would speak to us as we read His Word and listen to Him. Father, this morning as we sit here faced with a terrifying situation, we ask, Lord, that You would help us to see the amazingness of the way You see the world. We ask that we would be able to see things as You do, the things in life that terrify us. We might see as you have seen them, as you have planned them, and that we might live as a result of hearing your word through your spirit today to serve the true and living God. Amen. Well, in any group of people like this, there's going to be nearly as many different views, poor points of view, as there are people in a room. Now, on certain subjects, uh, some of us are going to have points of view that are quite similar, uh, different things like seats are comfortable and we enjoy sitting in them. Um, most of us are going to have that point of view. Uh, but on others, we'll be oceans apart. You know, which is the best rugby union team in the world? Of course, it's the Wallabies. Right? Now, not everyone's going to agree with me. We all have different points of view. Uh, take, for example, the existence of God. Uh, some, like our media and the academic intelligentsia of the world, would have us accept that belief in God is outdated and a fairy tale. It's just not worth doing. But when you actually look at the statistics of the world's population, have a look at this. It's on the screen. Only 1.5% claim there is no God. Uh, 9% of the world are agnostic. That is, that they don't care. And the other 89% think there is a God. It's almost as if the media haven't seen some of the facts of what the world actually thinks, isn't it? More and more today, we're all encouraged to accept that we all have different points of view, but more than that, that all points of view are valid. You ever had people push that on you to say everything, everyone's point of view is valid? That's okay for you as long as you believe it. And then the next step is that it's, it's wrong that I should ever suggest that my point of view might be right and someone else is wrong. Or the other way around, it's wrong for, for you to suggest your point of view might be right and mine wrong. We all have different perceptions on things, different understandings. But the way that the world and postmodernism pushes us is just to see that they're all different points of view. And it's fine to have them. However, there is one that sees things as they really are. Seeing things as God sees them is the theme of the next two chapters of 1 Samuel. And what we've got before us here are, are two points of view. As chapter 16 opens, we're faced with these two different points of view. Have a look. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I've rejected him as king over Israel? If you remember back, um, Saul's actions to, to rebel against God and to not take God at his word caused havoc for his leadership of Israel. He would lose his kingship. And this, Saul's actions, deeply grieved Samuel, God's prophet. Uh, the king's rejection of the true and living God brought Samuel to tears. 
And we see here as this chapter opens, a, a Samuel on his knees crying. And there's something right about it, isn't there? There's something right when those who love God and his word care deeply about sin and its terrible consequences. There's something right about Samuel's grief. However, on this day, God's point of view, his position was very different. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way, he said. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Get over it, Samuel. Get over it. That, that's what's happening here. Stop licking your wounds and get on with my program. I have a plan and this is part of it. So I think there's such a thing as misplaced compassion. You know, when people can grieve too much, those times when you're tempted to think that you're more merciful than God is. Have you ever been there? Usually they start with phrases like this, if I were God, I wouldn't create a hell for people who sin. If I were God, I would send everyone into heaven. I wouldn't stop people. (laughs) Well, you're not God and neither am I. And neither was Samuel. God had chosen to reject Saul as king. And rejection kind of became the motto for Saul's kingship. Uh, the fact that he was chosen was a rejection of God as the true king. Do you remember that? Um, Saul was the king the people made for themselves in chapter 8. Samuel referred to him as your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. Saul then rejects the word of God. He takes matters into his own hands. He doesn't do what God says. So God rejects Saul as king. Saul is the reject king. He rejects God and so God rejects him. But now God has seen a different point of view. He's seen amongst Jesse's sons for himself a king. And the key word to note throughout these next two chapters is seeing. Because what's on view here is two ways of seeing. So Samuel, he, he sets off for Jesse's house in Bethlehem. We've heard that place before at the start of this book. Uh, there was a man from Ephrathah, which is called Bethlehem, from whom his wife had a child, Hannah. We'll hear more of this place, Bethlehem, soon. But Samuel sets out. And when he gets there, he, he kind of gets Samuel's sons paraded before him. And when the first son walks out, when Jesse's son Eliab comes out, his eyes lit up. See, because Samuel sees as man sees. Have a look at verse 6. Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He's like, here's the man. He was good, tall, good looking. He looked like what you'd want a king to look like. This seemed to be just the kind of man that God would choose. But do remember the last tall, good-looking man we came across in this book. Do you remember that story? 1 Samuel 9 verse 2. There was no one more impressive among all the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. King Saul was the last tall and impressive man we saw. But then God helps us to see things as he sees them. Look at verse 17. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
if you're into memorizing Scripture and, and keeping God's Word in our minds, that's a wonderful passage to have in your head, isn't it? Don't view the world as mankind does, but view it as God does. God looks at things differently, and we're going to see what that point of view is. God is not limited in His point of view like us humans are. He sees the heart, not just the outside exterior. He's got x-ray vision, if you want, but not merely of our physiology, but of our minds and our motives. There is nothing outside of this God's vision. That's the claim of Scripture. Not the past, not the present, nor the future. He sees all, He knows all, He plans all. He's very different to us because He is not limited like we are. If He has a point of view, it's the point of view. It has absolute validity. You can't just say, oh, that's true for God, but not for me. For He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He sees all things. He sees you. But verse 7 is saying more than that. Literally, it says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man sees according to the eye, but the Lord sees according to the heart. The Lord sees not as man sees. For man sees according to the eye, but the Lord sees according to the heart. When God sees, He doesn't just see as we do, by taking impressions and observing what is. He sees according to His heart. That is, God's point of view is determined by his own purpose and will. He doesn't just see things as they are. He determines how they'll be. He's the one who sets the plans of the world in action. And the fact is that Eliab, for all his good looks and height, was not the one that God intended to make king. So God did not see Eliab in the same way that Samuel saw him. Do you see the difference? One commentator says, Understanding this fact is the key not only to this chapter, but the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel. More than that, I I say it's the key to understanding life and the universe. God is in control. He sees, He determines according to His heart, His plans. A man after God's own heart. That's what so often we hear David referred to, and, and he is, but so often that's that means to us, we hear it as someone who was a godly man, someone who had a heart like God's. But I don't think it means that. I think it means a man God has set his heart on. A man of God's own choosing. The one whom God says, this one will be my king. This one will be my ruler. It's talking about the place man has in God's heart rather than the place God has in man's heart. So here, God sees not just with his eyes, but with his heart, with his own plans and purposes. All Jesse's sons are rolled out before Samuel. And every single one of them are rejected, except the last. It wasn't even there. A little shepherd boy. Pre-pubescent shepherd boy who looks after sheep. The youngest of the bunch. David had a particular place in God's heart, in God's plan and purpose. And that is what made him different from every other brother and from Saul who'd gone before him. He was the king 
that God would choose. That's what we call the doctrine of election. You want to think through this in kind of theological terms. Um, we call this the doctrine of God's election. God's good purposes arise out of His perfect and sovereign will. God, think back, chose Israel to be His people. He chose David to be His king. He chose Jerusalem to be His city. God is the one who chose. Eventually, God's purpose would be fulfilled in David's son, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know what Matthew and Peter and Luke all call Jesus? The chosen one. The one whom God selected to be his king. And you think about us, those who believe, who who trust in Jesus. Christian believers are told in Ephesians, in Thessalonians, in 1 Peter and in Revelation that we were chosen in him before the creation of the world. When man sees, he observes. When God sees, he determines. The doctrine of election, God's choosing, provides the firm foundation of our assurance. And at the same time, it means we can be humble. We have assurance because it's got nothing to do with us. As we think about our salvation and about our future and about the hope we've been offered and will I remain trusting in Jesus or not? Will my, my sin be dealt with? It's got nothing to do with you. But Jesus who died in your place. But God's chosen one through who God would bring the world back into relationship with himself. We're about to see that the fact that God wins this battle It's got nothing to do with David's size or skill or standing, but that David was the one that God chose. That's what this passage is about. God's plans and purposes depend ultimately not on anything else except His will. Just as God didn't choose Israel because of their righteousness or uprightness of heart, says Moses in Deuteronomy, nor did He choose this new king because of his personal qualities. Whatever personal qualities we see in this new king are the consequences of God's choice, not the reason he chose him. We have to break this and think through the reality. David in himself is no different from every other sinner on the face of the planet. We're going to see this later on. But that God chose him and chose to work through him in his brokenness would change the world forever. The security of David's throne will rest on the solid foundation, not of David, but of God's promises. That's what will make David's reign so very different from Saul's. And here lies the Bible's answer to postmodernism, to the the idea that we all have equally valid points of view and that they can all be true. This is why Christians can't accept postmodernism in its totality. Sure, we we want to welcome postmodernism's recognition that human knowledge is provisional, that we can only know certain amounts. There's a humility which it recognizes, which is right. But human knowledge is not the only knowledge. It's not that we want to impose our point of view on others. It's just that we cannot accept every point of view as equally valid. Because we claim that God's point of view has absolute validity because He's God, because He determines So human beings can only see properly. And here's the radical claim. You can only understand the world properly as you learn God's point of view. Which is exactly what the Word of God teaches us. 
to see David as God sees him, to see Jesus as God sees him. The question on our minds as we get to this part of, of God's word is, can you see properly? Or do you have no more than your own point of view? Well, the scene shifts and we get to chapter 17. And what we see now is a scene filled with terror. Goliath. It just sounds massive, doesn't it? You kind of want to go, Goliath. It's like the name of a monster truck. It's just the Philistines gather for battle. That's been the background, the looming threat of the whole book of 1 Samuel. And the scene is set in verse 3 with these words. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites the other, with a valley in between them. Two nations, both face to face. You can kind of feel the tension in the air. It's been building the whole way through. What will happen? But on this occasion, unlike every other occasion before it, the Philistine threat was embodied with just one single brute. (laughs) With a terrifying appearance and the terrifying speech of Goliath. A champion, he's called. Literally, the words there are a man of the between. You're like, what's that? Well, you'd have the front line of, of one army and the front line of the other. The man of the between would walk out of the front line and deal with one person from the other side as a champion, as a, as a man of the between. He's like, we'll sort this battle out. Let's not go to war. Let's just do it between you and me. He's over nine feet tall, 10 centimeters shorter than a basketball ring. That's huge. And then you kind of, we, we get his armor laid out for us. He was draped in metal. Chain mail weighing over 50 kilograms alone. A bronze helmet, bronze leg armor. Everything about this man that we meet, this Goliath, says impenetrable. You cannot get past this machine of a man. And then we see his weaponry. Javelin, most, most probably a, a curved sword. And then this huge spear with a seven kilogram tip. <laughs> and to top it all off, he has a shield so big, he's got a servant to carry it in front of him. He's got someone else there holding this shield before him. What's on view here is a weapon of a man, like no one or no thing you have ever seen before. He's huge. And here we sit with God's words to Samuel ringing in our ears. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature. It makes me wonder, could this possibly apply now? (laughs) Really? I mean, here is a height and stature that's pretty hard to ignore. (laughs) And And then the narrator tells us his voice. Have a look on the screen. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Literally there it says, am I not the Philistine? And the I is emphasized. It's like, am I the one you see? The nine and a half foot tall, weapon-slinging, metal-clad hulk that stands before you this day. Am I not the man? Am I not the embodiment of the Philistines? I am the Philistine. Where is your man, he says. Choose a man and have him come down to me. (laughs) And again... Those words ring in our ears. Choose a man. Where have we heard that before? Just a few chapters earlier, Samuel spoke to Israel about their king. 
your king, he called them. The one you chose for yourself. The Israelites had already chosen a man for themselves. His name was Saul. It was rebellion against God and it was choosing a man who would fight for them. And remember, Saul was head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. Even Samuel said there was no one like him amongst all the people. Here's the one the people had chosen. Here's the one who should be seemingly suited to fight this Philistine hulk, yet just like at his coronation, he's hiding amongst the bags. Nowhere to be seen. Where is this king you chose, Israel? Then Goliath lays down the challenge. Let the Philistine face the Israelite. Where is your man? And nothing happens. You can kind of imagine the silence, right? Little kind of clunking of armor. Who is going to step forward? Will anyone come? What will happen? Then the silence is broken by his thunderous voice again. Verse 10. I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. (laughs) How do you see this situation? From your point of view, if you were in their shoes, what would you be thinking? This isn't how it was supposed to be. Do you remember Hannah's words in chapter 2? That God would raise up a king? Have a look. Chapter 2, verse 10. She said, those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. But on this day, it's Goliath that's terrorizing and thunderizing. What is before Israel on this day is phenomenally terrorizing. Then we read, for 40 days, the Philistine hulk bellowed every morning those same words. And then every evening, he would bellow exactly the same words again for Israel to send their chosen one. For 40 days. That's got to be demoralizing, hasn't it? This isn't how it's supposed to be. And the king Israel chose who looked good in their eyes from their point of view, just sat there terrified. But while all this was happening, a small boy from Bethlehem was making his way down to the valley of Elah to see his brothers and take them some food for the battle. A boy who saw God for who he was, who God saw and God chose. A boy for who we know was more than met the eye. As David arrives to deliver this food for his brothers, he hears the war cry of the Hulk. He leaves his things. He drops them literally in the passage with the keeper of the baggage to run forward to the action, to run out to the front line, to face the battle and see what's going on. And I wonder again, do you see the contrast in what's happening here? between a small boy and a much, much larger Israelite, who though he was head and shoulders above Israel, tried to hide himself where? Among the baggage, at his coronation. Where is this king you chose? How does the world work when you view it from your point of view, when you choose who you want to choose? Well, as David reaches the front line, the the narrator repeats the detail 
of Goliath. Not for us. Not for anyone else in the Valley of Elah, but for David. Because this is the first time David hears and sees this incredible Hulk. And the only difference between the two accounts that we get is four little words at the end. Four little words that would make an enormous difference, though no one would have guessed it at the time. Have a look at verse 23. And David heard it. David heard it. Did anyone else on that day notice that David heard Goliath? Did anyone else care that this little shepherd boy heard the incredible Hulk? But right here, at that very moment, is a turning point in Israel's future. That moment David hears Israel's history would change forever. And that would change the face of the world as we know it today. Here is a history-defining moment. David heard Goliath. And he saw. And it makes me wonder, what did David see? What was the point of view David had as he looked on that Goliath? The Israelites saw Goliath as man sees and were terrified, shaken in their boots, hiding in the baggage. But what would Goliath look like for someone who saw, not as man sees, but as God sees? What would he look like from that point of view? Verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The Hulk becomes a pawn in the eyes of God and the eyes of the little shepherd boy. David sees as God sees. The God of Israel is the living God. This Philistine hasn't just insulted Israel's armies, he's insulted the true and living God. Who is going to let him get away with it? Who does that? Who insults the creator and sustainer of the universe and lives to tell the story? But you and I have become so accustomed to that, haven't we? In the world that we live in. So accustomed to not batting an eyelid when someone says something negative about God. Or when someone says he's probably not true or someone else mocks him. We just let it go past. We think, oh well, and we kind of shrink that little bit more. It's not that God needs defending. He doesn't. We're going to see that in a few moments. But it does show when we don't even try to explain the reason why we believe or what he's done, or who he is, it's almost as if we're accepting defeat, isn't it? Oh, to see things as God does. There are many points of view, but there is only one God. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe God is the one who is in control? Well, for the one who sees things the way God sees things, this simply won't do. David is just not happy with what is going on. Moments later, David's standing before King Saul. Uh, Saul has heard his view of Goliath and and what he said. And listen to to the way David, this spirit-filled shepherd boy, speaks to Israel's king. Look at verse 32 of chapter 17. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. (laughs) Your servant will go and fight him. Do you see how ridiculous this is? (laughs) There's a shepherd boy, like this high. There's Goliath, like basketball ring, standing before the king of Israel, saying, don't lose heart, I'm here. (laughs) It's kind of ridiculous. Have you seen him? 
This is nonsense. Goliath embodied terror. Who in their right mind could stand down that ugly brute and say, let no one lose heart? You've got to be loopy. Surely, you're like, what, what has gone wrong with David's head? Has he been out with the sheep too long? I've been smoking bad stuff and now it's kind of all gone bad. Like, what's, what's happening? But as you think about it, it's not dissimilar from our position, is it? For those who trust in Jesus. Look at your enemy if you dare. Think of death. Think of your death. The ugly brute that faces us all. Think of your sin. The way you and I have treated the creator of the universe. The things I've said and done and thought and haven't done. The things that the creator of the universe sees and knows. For he sees all and knows all. And the judgment that awaits you and I for turning our back on him. Think of the devil, of Satan. And his claim on you naturally. You are enslaved to Him. We are are naturally part of of His world. We naturally turn our backs on God and follow our Father who is Satan. Do you want to face Him on your own? Do you feel comfortable facing your sins before the Creator of the universe? Are you happy going, yes, death is sorted? These are terrifying fronts. But when one sees things like God does, the world looks very different. A doctor in the early first century collating the evidence that existed for a man called Jesus of Nazareth records these words said by an angel. Luke chapter 2 verse 10. But an angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Don't be afraid. You'll be saved from your enemies, from Satan, from sin, and from death itself by the one who's wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Just as ridiculous as David's line to King Saul to not lose heart in the face of this Goliath. It's no wonder people find it hard to take the news of Jesus seriously. It's the same reason that Saul found it hard to take David's word seriously, but not for the one God chooses. He sees things as God sees things. Have a look at verse 46. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. David knows who is God and who is not. He knows whose heart determines every step of history. And he reorients his whole life, all that he knows and sees and feels and understands based on this one fact. God is in control of everything. God is God. It's his battle. It's his world. It doesn't just depend on on David's strength or skill on this day or any day, but on God who delivers his people, on the Savior. So David runs quickly toward the battle line to meet the Goliath. 
And it's now like slow motion that the whole passage slows down. David slowly reaches into his bag, pulls out a stone, puts it in the sling, and it's like blow by blow, swings the sling, and the rock flies towards this Goliath, strikes him in the forehead, and sinks into the brain that thought Goliath was the ruler of the universe and corrects that view in one foul blow. Goliath falls to his knees as the dust rises from the ground. And we're called to remember that Goliath was formed from the dust by God and to dust God will return him as he lies there on the ground that day. This is God. Do you see him? No one can fight this God and live. Death without forgiveness terrifies me. The idea of facing the creator of the universe on my own two feet for what I've said and done and thought, it seriously scares me. I can't think of anything worse than facing the one who controls all things on my own and saying, am I good enough? Because I know the answer is no. And I know he's just. And I know the penalty that I need face. As I think of the Satan who has so much power, I can't destroy him on my own. I can't, if it were head to head, Rowan and Satan, I'm gone. I'm out. I can't do this. As I think about the temptations of the world around me, it's, it's, it's pull, it's seductiveness. They're just so strong, aren't they? But we need to learn to see the threats that face us properly. We need to learn to see as God sees things, to reorient our world around His view. The threat of death is real for every single person in this room today. And so is your sin and mine. And so is the judgment that awaits us. My only hope of salvation rests on a Jewish carpenter who died a criminal's death, but who died my death. And who rose so I might have life as the victor, the champion, the chosen one. So it doesn't depend on me, but on Him and what He has done. When you see Him for the God that He is, doesn't the world change? Doesn't your confidence to speak the truth of Jesus change? Doesn't your hope of the future change? In Romans 8, Paul reminds us of the way God sees the world. Let me read it to you. If... God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, was raised to life. It's at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor either height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The question for you today is, is Jesus your Lord? Let's pray. Father God, this morning as we have seen this mammoth battle, as we are pushed to look at the way that we view the world in front of us, we ask that we would see as you see. That we would see you for who you are, that we would see your son, the one whom you have chosen, who has offered us life. Lord, as we face really our greatest enemy, sin and death and the devil, help us to remember that Salvation has been offered in Jesus. And because of that, Lord, let us speak the truth. Let us live like David did, standing not on our own two feet, but on Jesus' death in our place. Father, we ask today that you'd capture us, you'd so capture us with this picture of your Son, that it might change the way we think and see and experience and feel and understand the world to be in line with you. We pray this, Lord, in your Son's name. Amen.